This is Geraldine Hasselpool, FMH blogger and all-around Mormon feminist superstar. If you have enjoyed the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast as much or more than you have enjoyed a Mormon casserole or a salad recipe from the children's friend, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the podcast. Your donation supports the amplification of women's voices, past, present, and future. Please give and give generously, and then deduct it from your taxes like a true American, and then eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, you've earned it. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Feminist. Mormon. Hello and welcome back to the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in a year of polygamy where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage and try to understand how it relates to our life today. If this is your first time tuning in, I would recommend going all the way back to episode one. We have a tab on feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org where it says year of polygamy and you can see all of the episodes in order. This series is meant to sort of go in order in a chronological order. Uh, the New York Times compared this podcast to the serial podcast, which was very flattering. So right now in the, in the era that we're in, in the podcast, we're going to be talking about the 1886 revelation and sort of how the church divides and breaks up into fundamentalist groups and non-fundamentalist groups. And I'm really excited to bring someone who has a little bit of knowledge in that area. He goes by Mithrin on Reddit. Mithrin, can you say hello? Hello, everyone. Okay, can you tell us about yourself, since you have this sort of uh, coded name, and uh, we're not revealing your real name. Can you tell us why this topic is interesting to you? Yeah, um, there's a couple of reasons. The, the Probably the basic one is that my father wanted me to uh, join FAIR, like he did all of the kids, or uh, the Maxwell Institute Farms, as it was back then. And so um, we talked about things like Sears Jones around the dinner table, and these topics came up. And then in 1990, uh, there was a man by the name of Arvind Shreve who died in the Utah State Penitentiary for multiple accounts of interactions with minors. I don't know how to say that in a nice, gentle way. Uh, but he was a polygamist. And at that point, my mom talked about that she knew the man. And in fact, he had proposed to her as a, uh, as a multiple wife before she met my father. And of course, she had turned him down. So that led me to go and, and dig up a little bit about how in, in the world that my mother existed could there ever be polygamists? You know, I'd grown up in this LDS North Utah air environment where everything was kind of, you know, uh, correlated is the word that comes to mind, but it was all standardized and, and calm. And yet she had this kind of cool outlandish story. So that's where I started digging up on this. And I followed Hugh Nibley's advice that if you look up or if you see something, you don't just look up the source, but the source of the source. And that kind of drove me to where I am with, uh, with understanding the FLDS. There's also one other kind of interesting aspect. That was back when I was still a, a fully believing 110% member. I was actually teaching Elders Quorum at the time. Uh, just been released as Elders Quorum president. I had a personal revelation. I can still remember I was up in the, uh, the, the kids bedroom in the house we were in. 
And there was just this very clear feeling that the FLDS were going to have a raid there in West Texas. And we were living in Texas at the time. We'd just driven by their, their compound, um, several times. And, uh, I kind of thought that's weird. And I felt like I should kind of do the, uh, the Samuel the Lamanite thing, go up on the wall and tell them they all needed to change or else the, this calamity was going to come. And I just kind of brushed it off. And then, uh, sure enough, by the end of the summer, the, uh, the, the compound was raided. And that led me to a lot of questions about, you know, was that real? Was I just kind of dreaming things? What would have happened if I had? Still have no idea. But all of that kind of combined together to say, I should know more. And that's, that's led me to where I am. Okay. Well, thank you. And you're, you're pretty popular on Reddit. You've got quite the following from what I understand. I'm not on Reddit very much, but. Yeah, for some reason, this nerd with the computer that I am uh, ended up popular somewhere. I don't really know how that happened, but I, I'm flattered by it, and, and I'm always happy. Well, what, how it really started, uh, they, people were starting to post, like, have you ever heard this before? Have you ever heard this crazy thing? So I put out a challenge for everyone to post the craziest thing they'd ever heard that, that was supposed to be Mormon doctrine, and I would find a general authority who had actually given the quote behind it. And we did it actually three times, three separate occasions, the thousands of members threw out everything that they could. And out of it, we only found one that uh, someone had heard someone quote that was not backed up by a general authority. And I think that's kind of where the popularity began, was that I could kind of go through and sift through all the quotes of all the general authorities to find these really odd, outlandish quotes. So this fits right into that with this uh, this revelation um, it, it's odd, it's outlandish, it's a little bit bizarre, and it's it's fun to talk about. So can we back up and talk about your revelation for a minute? Because sure. I'm sure people out there listening, uh, some might, you know, just take that at face value and others might get a little squeamish when they hear that, especially when we're talking in regards to Mormon fundamentalism. That can go in all sorts of directions. So when I hear it, I get a little nervous because I've heard now in doing this research, uh, so many different people have all these different conflicting ideas of revelation and revelation that tells them to do sometimes harmful and dangerous things and sure. revelations that tell them to start their own churches. So how do you contextualize that now? Um, well, I think I'm going to answer two questions. The one that you didn't ask as well as the one you did. Okay. Uh, there's the fair training going, going into, into effect. But, uh, I think that it really do have to be careful. My parents always warned me of going to like extracurricular Sunday school activities or institute classes after, because that is where Arvind Shreve picked up, uh, the people who eventually followed him. And it is very much how, uh, these fundamentalist sects break off and start their own, uh, you, someone gets a revelation and off you go into deep into crazyville. And so, of course, that was part of why I didn't follow it at the time. Uh, looking back on it now, I started a journal when I began to leave, uh, the faith, uh, where I kept track of all the times I thought I was spiritually, spiritually prompted or had any sort of revelation and wrote down what it was as well as, uh, whether or not it actually came true and tracked this six months before. And then I sent in my, my resignation or stopped attending church, stopped attending church first and tracked it for six months after as well. And came to the conclusion that, um, none of the things were beyond what my own subconscious could have come up with. That there wasn't really any good indication. This wasn't just something that came from the back of my mind. So I would say now that what I thought was a sudden revelation was just 
having driven past the uh, the compound and and thought about that they were pouring concrete that would resist bullets and and so forth that uh, it wasn't a hard guess. It wasn't hard for my subconscious to say, "Hey, something could happen here," and so that's where I would I would put it today. But uh, and I, I would say that a lot of that is because it really does lead you to some weird places to have these personal revelations that can send you out. But as a true believing member, it was something that that drove me to research more, and that's that's why I bring it up. Yeah, and I'm so excited to talk about this topic. I'm in my research period of Mormon fundamentalism right now, and there are some really dark places to go with that research, and there are also some really interesting places. So I find myself, and I'm going to just give this warning to my listeners, I feel a little bit cynical and angry right now because I am dealing with some really, really dark, heavy stories of abuse. And it's a lot for me to process in the December months of Christmas. So uh, I hope that that bias is out there and um, I hope I can still treat this subject respectfully. So let's get into the story. Uh, if you were listening before, you just heard a little bit about John W. Woolley which should give you some context. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would recommend backing up one episode and learning a little bit about him. Mithrin has done something really cool. He has come up with a sort of timeline of events. And I'm going to let him go into this sort of timeline. And uh, I'll be asking questions throughout it. But we're going to talk about this 1886 revelation, which is really important to understanding the contemporary state of Mormon polygamy. Absolutely. So one of the things to understand um, that was also going on at the same time is I was reading the John Taylor Manual. And if you go through the John Taylor Manual that's produced by the church, you're not going to hear even a fraction of what we're going to go over today. But he was really big on polygamy. But when he started, um, we're, we're going to go back to 1851. So the, the saints are out in Utah. Um, and John Taylor actually denied having uh, that polygamy was going on out in Utah in 1851, uh, while at the same time having six wives of his own. And that may be a little bit shocking. I don't know exactly where all of your listeners are. I'm going to assume that, that this is slightly new. That It was common to lie about polygamy, and that was expected of good members uh, throughout this whole time period. And that's going to feature into our story a little bit later on. In, in, on October 23rd, 1856, this John W. Woolley that you've introduced your listeners to, he has a son by the name of Lauren Woolley, and he's going to become very key as well. Um, in 1866, John Taylor called the non-polygamists. He referred to them as apostates. So, again, it's hard to get the context today, but we would look to, for all the world, this whole LDS Utah religion, would be apostates to Wilfred Woodruff, Brigham Young, uh, and the others. Uh, they, they did not mince words. It was not a small thing. And that was April 7th. I believe he gave it at conference uh, as part of his talk. It's in the, the Journal of Discourses. In 1870, we come up on the Temple Lot case. And I don't know how much you've gone over that. I believe you've had a whole episode on the Temple Lot case at this point, yes? No, we actually haven't discussed. We are oh. planning to talk about it. So go ahead and say whatever you want to about the Temple Lot. Brilliant. Uh, everyone should have a copy of the Temple Lot case on, on their bookshelf. I, I absolutely believe that. It is fascinating to read. You have everything from Sarah Lawrence uh, bearing testimony under oath 
that she had sex with Joseph Smith not just once, but only once in a bed. You've got very um, graphic descriptions of what was going on and who was with who. And, uh, and the reason is that the reorganized church had made a bid for being the authentic church uh, and owning the temple lot. There was a, another group, the Church of Christ, that had said they owned the temple lot. And the judge came forward to say, whoever is the correct success, successor of Joseph Smith gets the temple lot. So Brigham Young jumps in and he sends, by, by declaration, all of these wives of Joseph Smith to testify to say that, that polygamy was real so that they could earn the temple lot or, or win it in this court case. And so they come forward with, with surprising detail and amazing, uh, information about who and what and when and where. Um, so that's that's kind of context for why we have so much about polygamy, where people are bearing testimony in that 1860 to 1870 time period, uh, and why it becomes such a big deal is they really admit it because they're trying to win the temple lot. At the end, the judge uh, declares that the reorganized church is the true church, and he deems a portion of it to them. There's still a portion held by the uh, the Church of Christ Temple lot today, but that's the reorgan- reorganized church actually wins the court case. Yeah, and it's um, super important to understanding this history too. And and I've said many absolutely. times on this podcast that we have women in Victorian America getting on the stand talking about their sex life in detail. It's a big deal. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Brian Hill sometimes says that we have not very good evidence that there was sexual relationships. To have a Victorian woman get up and talk in the detail they do, I think, surpasses the amount of evidence that is required for somewhere between 9 and uh, 20 of the wives. It's somewhere between 20% to 44% of the wives. I would say we have pretty darn good evidence because of the Temple Lot case. Absolutely. Uh, The alternative is to say that Brigham forced them to lie, and I'm not willing to do that to these women who, who stayed faithful their whole lives and and live their faith. I, I just don't see reason to call them liars. Solidarity next, on that, brother. <laughs> the next big event, in 1882, the United States Congress enacted the Edmonds Act, which declared polygamy to be a felony. So there's a whole bunch of Journal of Discourse speeches, especially by John Taylor in 1882, uh, that talk about polygamy. Again, that's why this all comes up. We had just admitted that polygamy was going on in the uh, Temple Lock case, and that kind of churned and bubbled into this Edmonds Act coming coming forward. Uh, and, and John Taylor talks about how we're not going to abandon the women and children, even if the law of the land is there. We're not going to bend the law's authority. And if you talk about, like, Spencer W. Kimball, his, his message was do it, and he meant missionary work. Or uh, Ezra Taft Benson is the Book of Mormon and flooding the earth with the Book of Mormon. If you were to say, what was John Taylor's message? It would be, we will not give in polygamy. We're not going to bend to the will of the United States. God's law is higher than man's law. Those were his themes. And I think that's why we never really cover him in any sort of detail in the, in the, the typical manuals. Um, I think the next biggest thing is that during this Edmonds Act, while, while, Congress is fomenting and talking about all this. On the 13th of October, Hebert J. Grant is called to be an apostle. And Joseph F. Smith said on this occasion that without polygamy, the keys would be turned against them, and the higher law 
must preside over a lower law. And we're going to get back to that in a little bit, but this gets used a lot by the fundamentalists, this particular speech, uh, to say that anyone who is not living under this, this polygamous eternal marriage concept, they don't, they aren't hired. They can't preside. So therefore, Thomas S. Monson, Gordon B. Hinckley, all of these, they can be prophet, but they're a lower prophet than the one who is living the polygamy law. And this is important for the context we're going to talk about soon. Absolutely. Again, I'm trying to build up the case here. This as is we're fantastic. Um, yeah. In March 20th, 1870, Lauren C. C. Woolley, uh, that I mentioned before, the son of John W. Woolley, states that he was made an apostle by Brigham Young when he was eight years old. This is a little bit awkward. This is one of those things we're going to talk about under the apologist section. Uh, but Brigham Young really did make uh, several kids into apostles, mostly his own. This is a little bit of a stretch because Lauren was not his own own child, but he made one of his children an apostle at age 12 and so forth. This was something that Brigham did. Uh, so it's not completely out of credibility. In March 10th, 1873, he was ordained an elder by the hand of uh, John Lyon. Um, and then we get the next biggest event. Sorry, I backed up a little bit there. I went back to the 70s. After the Edmund Tucker Act and Heber J. Grant is called, then we finally get to this revelation. Uh, and there, I think, do you have any questions up to this point? Is there anything you want to delve into, or shall we go into straight what this revelation says? No, I think this is good. This is where we've been building up with the podcast as well, and I think that this is important. The reason why you are making this case, is, like you said, this is foreshadowing because I've said on the podcast before there's sort of this conspiracy theory that that goes with fundamentalism, and it's a compelling theory when you consider all this evidence, which is the LDS church, the main LDS church that I belong to, is in modern-day apostasy, or it is not in apostasy, but just sort of keeping the lights on while the true principle has been practiced on the earth. And this is going to help back back up that theory, correct? Exactly. Absolutely. And I love that you say conspiracy theory. It really falls under conspiracy theory both ways. And let me define how I view conspiracy theory. Um, I, I'm a data analyst in a marketing department at, at, during my day job. And uh, anytime you have two sets of data that conflict with each other, in which there's good evidence, conspiracy theory is, is born. It's created at that moment. So some people believe that the data tells this story. Other people believe the data tells a different story, and they will come up with theories why that is, and I watch it happen with executives at work all the time. Uh, in this case, we're talking about that there is good data on both sides that both that this meeting took place and that it didn't, that there were people who did it and, and weren't there, and and all around it. So we're, we're deep in the conspiracy side of things, and that's mostly because of the secrecy and that people were leading these double lives. They would lie about polygamy on the stand uh, in the in the middle of the, the testimonies of the Reed Smoot trial. We're going to get to that. Um, they lied boldface in front of Congress. They would forget how many children they had and who they were married to and when their wedding happened. Uh, and, and this leads to a lot of confusion. And so it's right for people to point fingers and say that didn't happen, that did happen. It's got all of that. It makes for a wonderful story as a historian. And really, this is what people are going to depend on. The LDS church depends on this story for some of their narratives and the fundamentalists Absolutely. depend on the, you know, on these 
conflicting evidences for their narratives as well. So it gets really messy, but fascinating. Yeah, to, to go a little bit off track, but not terribly, um, uh, Harold B. Lee, who kind of rewrites the church with correlation, uh, and I hope you get to that a little bit of that as well, he actually watches some of the excommunications in his state because of the polygamists. And he takes this hard line lead to find what a Mormon is to, to separate and get rid of these polygamists. So how the church is today is very much because of these apostles, Ibbins and, and Crawley that we're going to talk about, uh, and, and this revelation, why they do what they do. It's all shaped by whether or not this happened and when it happened and why it happened. Uh, that's enough lead in, right? We can go, we can get to it now. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. So, um, you can tell I work in marketing. I can sell. No, your uh, research is go. good. I like it. This is exciting. So according to the story that, uh, that Wooly gets, we are, um, John Taylor's on the underground. He's hidden like some of the others, Wilfred Woodruff. This is the time period where he wore the Mother Hubbard dress and was busted by a federal, uh, agent. Um, I don't know how much your listeners know about that, but, but he, he did cross dress in order to hide from the authorities. Uh, there was a whole series of, um, secret hidden passageways built into Provo stores and in Ogden and in order to, so that the general authorities could get away. Uh, they used to have, I don't know, any, anyone who's a little bit older than me in the audience, uh, there was a, a restaurant called The Underground in Provo, and I got to go to it once when I was a kid. But you would go into a phone booth, and you would t- type in a number, and then an elevator would actually take you underneath. And it was one of the places where John Taylor hid during this period. And let's just break in and talk about that really quick, because we've mentioned this on the podcast before. In the Gardo house, for example, he built all these like secret passages. And John Taylor was considered this sort of like rebel, bad A sort of Mormon prophet because he was obstinate about it. He became this kind of superhero running from the law and giving them the middle finger every chance he got. Absolutely. George Buchanan kind of ran things while John Taylor was in hiding. Uh, He was the financial arm of the church. And he had far more power when the wanted posters were posted by the feds. Uh, John Taylor is wanted and his reward is a hundred dollars. Uh, George Buchanan is five hundred dollars because he was, had so much more power. That's going to come into play as well for some of these claims. But, uh, because John Taylor was so busy hiding and, and so, so much into the underground, George Buchanan had to run things. There's even a, a pretty good story of, when George Buchanan was being taken in to be prosecuted and he tried to escape the authorities, he actually ends up falling off the back of the train and breaking his nose and getting a concussion. So they, he just stands there uh, dumbfounded while the authorities come and pick him up. It's a crazy period of time. And I just want to kind of highlight it was a different world. So when we start to talk about these things, that they were in this hiding place, that George Buchanan was there, they get together this secret council and John Taylor is is in and among this small group of, of tightly knit friends, and uh, it's brought before him some complaints of various members about polygamy and, and what it takes to live this law. And he says that he goes, uh, sorry, John W. Woolley says, John Taylor took it before the Lord that night, and the next day he gives this revelation. Uh, September 27, 1887. This is supposed to be read in the the voice of the Lord. My son, John, you have asked me concerning the new and everlasting covenant and how far it is binding upon my people. 
Thus saith the Lord, All commandments that I give must be obeyed by those calling themselves by my name, unless they are revoked by me or by my authority. And how can I revoke an everlasting covenant? Um, you don't get much more blunt than that. John Taylor is saying, do we have to keep living this? And the answer is, by the Lord, how can I revoke an everlasting covenant? And also that introductory phrase, thus saith the Lord, that had a lot more meaning back then than it does to us. This is the difference between when a prophet is speaking as a prophet and when a prophet is speaking the words of the Lord. There should be no ambiguity. This is coming from uh, God himself. So he gets this revelation. He says, there should not be a year that passes without uh, a, a child born to polygamy or else that will be the second coming. That's the end of the world. And he has this group of people swear that they are going to live polygamy no matter the cost, their personal nature, their, 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 their families and their fortunes, to use the, the language of the Constitution Declaration of Independence here. Uh, they, and they, they promise and then supposedly, according to, to the theory, he sets apart some very odd individuals to live this law and to be another set of apostles. That would be uh, the bodyguard here or the messenger, depending on which version of the story you take, Lauren C. Woolley, John W. Woolley, and a group of others who are dead only a few years after. It's really those two who were going to follow the story on. But it's this, this small tight-knit group that he calls the Council of Friends. Again, to your average uh, Sunday-going LDS member, I don't know that they they would believe that he would set up a separate council. But back then, there was a council of 50. There, there's several councils that he's put together. Uh, and in fact, in 1882, when this, this Edmund Tucker's act happened, John Taylor said that patriarchs could seal people wherever, whenever they needed to into polygamous marriages. So you didn't have to go to the endowment house. You didn't have to go to any of the temples. The patriarchs, uh, that would be like your state patriarch that you go to for patriarchal blessing, now suddenly have the authority to seal people. So this kind of new council suddenly springing up um, was very much in context uh, of the day of how things were done. And there was some tension with this to begin with. I mean, in the new gospel topic essay about Utah, polygamous marriages, the church has this line where they said only the president had the authority to authorize these marriages. And there's a footnote that says, actually, at sometimes other people were authorized as well. And this exactly. kind of speaks to that tension there. Absolutely. And, and we're going to get to Heber J. Grant was not okay with the patriarchs having the ability to marry whenever, whomever, uh, after this revelation. Let me go a little bit into to some of the immediate fallout, and then we'll go back and talk a little bit more about how this impacted John W. Woolley and how this set the stage for all the next set. Um, so in 1888, on May 22nd, uh, Samuel Taylor is, defines eternal marriage as plural marriage. This is one of those great big speeches, tons of members in attendance. There's just no ambiguity during this time period. If you are sealed eternally... That means you have a second wife, and it doesn't count. In their opinion, none of our current endowments or, or ceilings would be valid because you haven't taken a second wife yet. Um, in 1891, Heber J. Grant violates his amnesty agreement after a previous infraction by trying to marry Fanny Woolley. 
There's there's a key name in there. For anyone who's still paying attention, I hope you're awake in the back of the room. Uh, Fanny Woolley is, in fact, related to John W. Woolley. So Heber J. Grant is thoroughly married to this fundamentalist group that's going to break off later on. Now, and that's remember, and we, when we talked about John W. Woolley, it's also important to note that he is related. He was the uncle to Spencer W. Kimball and Reuben J. Clark and jo- John W. Taylor. So there's a whole family connection here. Absolutely. And, and Joseph F. Smith and John W. Woolley were fast friends. Uh, Joseph F. Smith speaks at his wife's funeral, at, at John Woolley's funeral. Um, they were closely tied throughout their lives. They, the idea that these were separate groups still hadn't happened by the time that Joseph Smith, Joseph F. Smith was still alive. They were still very much similar groups, which is with some tension. Um, 1891, Heber J. Grant, we, we talked about he violated it. Uh, 1895, so that's four years after Heber J. Grant got in trouble, that's when the manifesto takes place. Uh, the Wilford Woodruff Manifesto. And again, in this day and age, anyone who was in Polygamy knew that this manifesto, it didn't start with, thus saith the Lord. It didn't have the verbiage. And so they knew it was kind of a nod and a wink to the Federals, but it really didn't hold. No one believed this manifesto was supposed to be held who was in the, the covenants of polygamy. In 1899, Heber J. Grant is found guilty of unlawful cohabitation with Fanny Woolley. That would be the same as he was living with her, and the Federal agents found him. Uh, on the 19th of November in the year 1900, Abraham Woodruff, this is an LDS apostle uh, re- relative to Wilford Woodruff, states that no year shall pass without a polygamous child. And I find this really fascinating because I had always thought that that was just an FLDS concept that had come from this revelation. But it was actually stated by LDS apostles as well uh, throughout this time period, this idea that we are all gonna gonna be condemned early. The the world gets burned early if we are not in polygamous marriages. It was on both both sides of the aisle all the way up until excommunications start happening. Um, and then 1902, the Reed Smoot is seated in the U.S. Congress. So that's that's what we're leading up to is that whole mess uh, around John W. Woolley's. Um, this, this revelation, because we don't really know a lot about this revelation until after the Reed Smoot trial. Once that Reed Smoot trial happened, um, Joseph F. Smith is put on the stand. Uh, he's asked a, a couple of very interesting questions. One of them is whether he's still living in polygamy. And he, he actually admits that he is living in polygamy, even though the church doesn't uh, endorse it anymore. He sees a difference between him being the prophet and still living it and the church not doing it. Uh, one of the apostles at this time period puts forward the idea that they could say they've given up polygamy, but they're still engaged in, in eternal marriage. Because eternal marriage means polygamy, and that way they could worm away from it. And John Taylor won't have any of that. He, he really feels that uh, that they have to be kind of take the bull by the horns. I said that. It's out of order, actually. We should have John Taylor say, says that back when he was alive. He's actually dead by this point. Uh, but in 1904, the second manifesto is put forward by Joseph F. Smith, who says that uh, anyone who does not cease the continuation of practice of plural marriage would be excommunicated from the church. 
And that moment where the second manifesto comes, um, and this is where you really start to split between the people who, who believe it was a nod and a wink with that first manifesto and it starts to get serious. And, uh, they start pulling in people who were sealed and asking them, who married you? Who, who put this polygamous marriage into, into action? And part of the sealing to your second wife or your third wife was that you would, uh, part of the promise was that you would never reveal who the sealer was. And so you get these crazy situations where they will have the apostle in the room asking the person, who sealed you? You're going to give us the name. And the person, of course, thinks it's part of this double speak because there's the apostle asking him to reveal. And, he, and so he thinks it's part of this, this test of whether they will stay faithful or not. And so they don't give up the name of who the sealer is. They're like, I'll go to my grave first. And it frustrates the other apostles who are trying to actually weed out and to excommunicate anyone who's still doing this. The most famous apostle who is doing this is John W. Taylor. He is the son of John Taylor and, and every bit as, as fervent about polygamy as his father was. Um, well, they, they finally get enough people to confess that John W. Taylor was the person who sealed them or gave the authority to seal uh, in a polygamous relationship that they, they call him up to an excommunication trial and he shows up. And in one of those gutsy moves, uh, much like his father was gutsy, he whips out this revelation at the excommunication trial and puts it down, thinking that it will be uh, the thing that saves him from excommunication. This this revelation exists, that it's real, and uh, that therefore what he's doing is right, and that he shouldn't be excommunicated. And they, they end up in excommunicating him anyway. Do you have any questions up to this point? Anything no, else you want to cover? The only thing I wanted to ask, so um, I'm still a little fuzzy on the actual revelation, like what happened with the hard copy. So did he have a copy of the revelation or was it supposed to be the original revelation? So there were five copies made by the secretary uh, on September 27th um, that are mentioned. One of them is in John W. Taylor's possession. George Q. Cannon supposedly has one. and um, I'm not sure where the other three went, but uh, this is one of those points that apologists love to to bring up um, and, and was stated actually uh, throughout this, this time period as well as, well, we don't have one in the archives, so therefore it never happened or it doesn't count. There's kind of this, this idea that it wasn't in the archives. Of course, it has been found. It wasn't in the First Presidency archive. It was in another one of the archives, uh, so there was a copy that the church had. So all of that becomes very shaky ground for trying to say this didn't happen. See, and some of my fundamentalist friends, they they believe that the church still has this some of this stuff in their archives. They you know, the story goes that John Taylor gave his his family gave his journals up to the church. They have not given them back to the family and uh that if those were released, if we knew what was in those, um, you know, aside from the fact of what we have, a little bit of stuff that they have released, that that they would be vindicated. Yeah, and and to, to their credit, there is a copy that is out there that has been analyzed with writing. Uh, and handwriting analysis is always kind of a flaky science at the best of, of, of the attempts. But it looks uh, so far that it is John Taylor's handwriting. And you can see a copy of it out on the internet. I will post a link over on my blog when I post up this timeline. Um, but 
And what do apologists say about that, about the handwriting analysis? Sorry, say it again? What do the apologists say about handwriting analysis? It's, uh, there's debate. Um, there's still a couple of holdouts. Most of them agree that it's John Taylor's handwriting, though. It really isn't a, a highly debated idea anymore that this revelation didn't exist. The question is whether it is a valid revelation, whether it really means that John, they, they've moved the attack uh, from, did John Taylor ever say this to, does that mean that Lauren C. Woolley was the correct person to carry it out? Is that the right way it should have gone? Now, so now it's fair because Lawrence C. Woolley does have some credibility issues, right? He waits like 20 years until he, get, can you go through those? Or are you prepared to? Absolutely. So tell us some um, of the credibility issues with Lawrence C. Woolley. Well, he was a messenger boy at the time. His father, a lot of times we will still talk about that these FLDS went out and they still had um, multiple wives, like they, they were sexual deviants, and that's why they kept doing it. And I don't think there's any sort of basis for that in the evidence. They go out and they don't start a church right away. They don't immediately start um, collecting tithing. They, they take a while and debate for a long time. Um, I want to find the actual years. I think it's between 1914 to 1918. There are no additional polygamous marriages. They're all trying to just answer, are these real? Should we keep doing this? Uh, do we have any authority to, to baptize new members? And people come out and find this council of friends and, and, and ask. In the meantime, everyone dies but John W. Woolley and Lauren C. Woolley. And that is the basis for why Lauren C. Woolley has any authority whatsoever, is that he claims he's the last surviving of this council of friends. All right, so Lawrence C. Woolley said uh, a number of things um, that were suspect. The, the biggest one, the one that gets him in the most trouble, and what he is eventually excommunicated for, was he said that he worked the Secret Service and that Heber J. Grant met with um, James E. Talmadge and that they both were sealed in additional polygamous relationships later. And there is no evidence that he worked for the Secret Service. For one thing, the Secret Service, its job is to protect the president. I think he meant the FBI. Uh, there's no good reason that he would claim the Secret Service except for the FBI. But uh, James E. Talmadge actually calls up the director of the Secret Service and asks point blank, did this guy ever work for the Secret Service? He's making some, some defamation claims. And the head of the Secret Service says, I will actually file lawsuit with you against him for saying that because no he never worked for us that's one of the the credibility issues that Lawrence C. Woolley has as we mentioned before saying that he was set apart as an apostle when he was eight years old by Brigham Young a lot of people see that as a credibility question because again Brigham didn't set just anybody apart at that age they were both relatives of his and one of the other things uh some of these quotes we have a lot of quotes by the people who were there the day that this revelation was written down. And, uh, and they will, their stories don't all mesh together. There's a lot of conflict. Some of them talk about that Lawrence E. Woolley wasn't there, that he was sent away earlier, uh, with a message. Others talk about that. Well, I'll just read it. Uh, this is Daniel R. Bateman, who was one of the, the council of friends that was there. He says, they entered into a solemn covenant and promised that they would see to it that not a year would pass without plural marriages being performed and children born under the covenant. That's the quote that you will see the FLDS 
you know, cite and recite and, and pull up, they will never quote the next line, which is, during this eight hours, President Taylor stood in midair two feet above the floor and in a halo of light. So there's a lot of, of these kind of wacky, from our point of view today, crazy claims that Joseph Smith appears and gives keys, uh, as well as many other old apostles as part of this revelation so that this will continue, things like that, that a lot of people find to be uh, uh, difficult on the credibility scale. How's that? That's good. That's good. And uh, when you get through the timeline, I just want to kind of spitball some conspiracy theories to back this up, okay? Sure. Absolutely. Okay, so um, didn't mean to sidetrack you, so keep going. No worries. So we need to get into this guy by the name of uh, uh, Mooser, uh, Joseph Mooser, and that he was kind of de facto set up to be the guy who was polygamous that stayed in, in Utah when the rest of them kind of move out. They go off into the uh, the desert to a place called Short Creek, and... Uh, there's some precedent for that in the in the Mormon literature, uh, like Lehi and his family leaving to the wilderness, uh, Moses and the Exodus. They kind of pull that same thing. And there's a bunch of prophecies by this Lauren Woolley that this place will also blossom as the rose, that it will it will grow. And anyone who's been there, you know that that, that certainly was not fulfilled. Uh, it's still a very difficult place to live. But I think it speaks to the faithfulness of these people. They were trying to do what was right to the best of their ability, that they... They left very comfortable homes, they left businesses, they left lives behind to try and protect the rest of the church. That the, they, could, they could follow the law, and these guys were going to go over here to the side and, and kind of keep this going on behalf of the rest of the LDS. And it's really not off the rails as far as what the church had always been doing, sort of running from the government and, and things like that. And I'm going to have Sanjeev Bhakacharya come on who has studied and followed these people. And oh, he, awesome. you know, yeah, he has talked about specifically how fundamentalists really depend on the government making this illegal, even though polygamy has now been decriminalized and some sects say that they want it to be decriminalized. Uh, the culture, starting with Brigham Young, and actually you could even argue with Joseph Smith, really developed around it being secretive. It added to the persecution complex. It added to this sort of prophetic narrative that you're talking about. We are driven away. We have an exodus. We leave our people. We leave our temple. We go into the wilderness, and that is where we'll be strengthened. This is a very Mormon narrative. It is. And I, I like that you say it's a Mormon narrative. I, I like to split off at this point and say, you know, there's there's all sorts of Mormon. There's the LDS, and they want to own the term. But really, that narrative of believing in Joseph Smith, of believing in the Book of Mormon, and of this sort of exodus to the wilderness to, to live your faith, it's owned by anyone who, who believes in Mormon, believes in Joseph Smith. It's, I think, a wider definition than they try to shoehorn. Anyway, so this Mooser uh, guy, he... he and Lauren Woolley want, they, they talk about, you know, new people want to come out and join them. They want to be baptized and they don't, they don't feel they have the authority to do it. They eventually, they start collecting tithing. They feel like they finally got the authority to baptize and they start to organize into a separate church. And during this time, Mooser starts to write letters with Joseph Fielding Smith. This is not Joseph F. Smith, but Joseph Fielding. And they start to go back and forth in 1929. And, uh, 
they'd basically grown up together. You know, they were the same age. They both worked in the church historian's office. And, uh, and, and Mooser comes to where Joseph Fielding Smith is in the audience. They're, they're together in one congregation and he takes the sacrament. And that is where the letter writing starts. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith really feels that that's wrong, that he's, he's been excommunicated, that it, it's horrible. And, and that leads to a split in the friendship and the relationships. Um, another instance of this, uh, Olive Woolley Combs, uh, the daughter of John W. Woolley. When, after John was excommunicated, I don't have a date on this. Um, he's in the, the Bountiful State Conference at the Tabernacle. And Joseph F. Smith is present. And Joseph F. Smith speaks. And after the he's done, he runs out of the Tabernacle as fast as he can. Joseph F. Smith does. And he, he catches up to John, and he says that the Twelve are ready to have him rebaptized, but only if it's in secret. And, and again, in that John Taylor sort of, I'm going to do what's right no matter what, John says that if he was excommunicated in, uh, openly, he had to be reinstated openly. And he, he doesn't go with it. So that, that kind of gives you a feel for the family, the split, the way that this this whole revelation and trying to follow it, everyone on all sides, I think, is trying to follow what they believe is right, and we end up with this massive split. Wait, can I Sorry, can I what? just throw in one conspiracy theory that I think is important in this context really quick? So there are some fundamentalists that, actually there are many fundamentalists that would believe that the LDS Church, their real prophetic line of authority stopped either at John Taylor, some say it stopped at Joseph F. Smith, and some say it stopped at Wilfred Woodruff. But let's say that you believe that. You believe that John Taylor did give the keys to the Woolies or to someone else or it's, or this authority stopped. And that would mean, in your view, that the LDS Church, the current LDS Church, did not have the prophetic keys. So when they're doing all these things of excommunicating you or kicking you out, those aren't really legitimate because you don't believe that they have the actual authority to do so. Does that make sense? And yes, so, absolutely. So that's important in, to this context. In fact, um, the early excommunications where Joseph F. Smith would excommunicate Oliver Cowdery or Sidney Rigdon or, you know, the whole plethora back in the, uh, the Kirtland Safety Society issue, they didn't reinstate priesthood afterwards. And this whole idea that when you get excommunicated, your priesthood is revoked actually comes out of this Joseph Fielding Smith um, uh, Mueller debate as well as John W. Woolley. When John W. Woolley goes to a, uh, his sister's funeral, um, he is asked to dedicate the grave. And as they're all there gathered, he starts to go to dedicate the grave and his, um, brother, I think George Woolley, runs up to him and says, I don't think you have the priesthood authority to do that. And there's a, a debate about whether he does or not, and he ends up dedicating the grave anyway, and uh, some of his, his other sisters were absolutely shocked that George would dare say such a thing at the funeral. How could you even implicate that he doesn't have the priesthood? Um, but it's a huge debacle because um, no one really knew. It wasn't something that had been discussed before, whether priesthood was removed when you were excommunicated. That comes out of this era. And I just, well, I would just like to point out that, I mean, so I grew up, my experience with the LDS church was we were so certain of our authority and people could trace it all the way back to Joseph Smith. And as I've tried to point out on this podcast over and over and over again, if you know anything about the secession crisis, when Brigham Young sort of um, 
gets power from Joseph Smith and it's this long, messy, drawn out process, uh-huh. lines of authorities are super messy. And so you could even argue that not even Brigham Young had Joseph Smith's authority. Yeah, Brigham, um, this is a little bit off topic, but it, it fits into it. Uh, Brigham actually states, as they're headed out west in winter quarters, I don't know that there will ever be a prophet again. Uh, that kind of gives you a feel of what they felt back at the time. This was not a clear, I've, I've often been known to say that uh, if the succession-ship crisis had been as clear-cut and as easy as the LDS Church makes it sound, it would have been the succession picnic as opposed to the crisis. It was really confusing. <laughs> Um, so I, I've made a misstatement. I want to correct myself before I, I go too much forward. John W. Woolley is the one who is excommunicated about lying over Heber J. Grant and James Talmud, not Lauren. He's the one who claims he was in the Secret Service. Okay. Um, so this Mueller guy, Mooser, sorry, I keep saying it wrong. Mooser, Joseph W. Mooser, compiles all of John W. Woolley's stories into one narrative in 1929. That's a year after Woolley has died. Uh, and, and before he dies, sorry, December 13th, 1928 is when, when he dies. John signs off on the whole, all of his revelations, the stories, this, this 1866 revelation, everything. He signs off on it and it's published in 1829. Uh, but it is signed off on before. In eight, 1931, Heber J. Grant publicly denies, uh, John W. Woolley's allegations. At conference, um, and George Buchanan in the next one uh, states the patriarch's authority to seal ends when the prophet dies. So he kind of recants all of these patriarchs who have had the authority to seal. Suddenly, they're left, you know, holding the rug. They're they're thrown under the bus. They've been sealing people all the way to 1931 and being excommunicated for it, as they're found out. And now in conference, they finally say, you didn't have authority. It was gone back when John Taylor or Joseph F. Smith, if that was the person who set you apart. When they died, your authority was gone back then. It was a new concept, and it was it left these people holding the bag. Um, and just after that is when Woolley, Lauren C. Woolley ordains the new Council of Friends. They, they decide that the church has gone off the rails to the point they're they're really, really gone. And they have to organize and form their own um, religion. And the interesting thing is, it's just a year after that, on September 19th, that Lauren Woolley dies, and this new council of friends, he does set up a successor, unlike the Brigham Joseph uh, interplay, or, or Strang Joseph, if you want to go that route, or Joseph Smith the third Joseph. Anyway, um... He actually sets up a successor, and so the Council of Friends goes forward, and that's where we end up with this uh, this FLDS break-off branch from the, the main one. Yeah, um, it's messy. I have a little bit more timeline if you want to go that route, or we can go back and talk more about these individuals and their lives. Uh, no, let's finish off your timeline. We're going to be talking about okay. these these names again, and this is something that I think the reason why we're going to be talking about more men in this context is because as in the LDS church, even though a lot of these guys were apostles and were really involved with the prophets, we never hear their names. And so we really yeah. need to understand this history to get familiarized with these last names, Wooly and Musser or Muser, however you want to pronounce it. And I Zitting. I as, as many women as I could that their, their name, most of these ceilings were so secret. You really don't get to hear like Fanny Wooly 
there's not a whole lot on her in all of history, even though she married uh, Heber J. Grant and there was the, like, there's a court case and that's all we really know about her. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I would have more women in here if I could have found Well, we're going to have uh, Corey Howard's trying to look up uh, John W. Woolley's wife. So we're, we are trying to learn more about them. But yeah, I do think... I mean, we have to understand this just as much as we understand Brigham Young. We have to understand these guys to understand this history. All right, finishing off the timeline. So July 26, 1937, the Salt Lake Tribune publishes an interview with Heber J. Grant in which he says, we never believed polygamy was wrong and never will. He implies that as soon as the law changes, that polygamy will be followed again instantly. Um, again, from the FLDS perspective, Heber J. Grant is still this, this shadow organization that's just pretending while they're over living the real law and taking all the risk. In 1953, Arizona police and National Guard raid the polygamous commune at Short Creek, Arizona, uh, and arrest all of the adults. Uh, 1990, it's alleged that only one descendant of John Taylor has been involved in fundamentalist polygamy. So one of the interesting things, and this is an apologist argument uh, against the whole John Taylor taught polygamy and, and always intended us to follow it, is that his own line did not continue in polygamy, that they, they did not continue to get sealed after uh, John Taylor died. Um, in May 6, 2002, uh, sorry, I should finish off the statement. Only one descendant of John Taylor was involved in polygamy, and she had the marriage annulled as soon as she became aware that her husband was a polygamist. So there was a little bit of a shock moment there. I wish I had more on that story. Uh, May 6, 2002, the FBI puts Warren Jeffs on the 10 most wanted list. July of 2005, eight FLDS men are charged with sexual misconduct in Arizona for relationships with underage plural wives. And again, the polygamy has been decriminalized, but polygamy and underage wives and, and sexual abuse get, they run into each other a lot. Uh, and I think that's why we still see it as, as secretive as it is. Uh, August 26, 2006, Warren Jeffs is arrested. December 9th, 2012, newspaper reports women leaving the FLDS. That August 26, 2006 is right around that time where I was doing my revelation about the FLDS. We're going to have something happen with that in time. Uh, January 9th, 2014, judge orders forfeiture of the Texas Polygamous Branch. And it's important to note um, that there's a whole bunch of other breakoffs from this FLDS sect. This is where you get the Order, which is a very secretive uh, group here in Salt Lake City that had, I think it was $100,000 of gold stolen from them by one of their members. Uh, there's the, uh, the uh, what's their name? The Swap Singer Group. Followed a lot of the same logic that the FLDS did, and that's the one where the guy was shot in the back over water rights, and then um, they had they had a raid on the compound. There's a movie about it. There's uh, my own personal history with Arvind Shreve. Uh, he looked up a lot of these same quotes. He read from the Journal of Discourses. He followed what John Taylor said, and he was also arrested for misconduct with with minor. Um, this is where a lot of the splits come from, is this whole line and this debate, and that there was a secretive church with following a separate set of rules. Uh, and, and Harold, again, Harold B. Lee, the reason the main LDS church does what it does is because he was trying to break away, get away from this, to rewrite this whole set. There's two other people I want to mention on the timeline, and then we should go back to whatever else. Uh, and those are 
two apostles, one by the name of Evans, and he is said to continue polygamy in Mexico. I'm sure you've heard about the polygamists going to Mexico. My family line actually comes out of uh, New Mexico because uh, they were following this edict. Um, and if you follow the Evans family, they have a blog where it talks all about his letters back and forth with the First Presidency and him being told the lie to the President of Mexico and say that polygamy isn't still going on and uh, how he was to word things. It's very specific. And he is trying to, to manage as best as he can. He actually gets thrown under the bus throughout all of this by, by Heber J. Grant and others. Um, and he is disfellowship. I don't think he's excommunicated. Um, and then there's another one by the name of Crawley, who takes a wife in 1905. He is disfellowship for that. That's after the Second Manifesto, but he is not excommunicated either. Um, and, and these, these two apostles were, part of this secretive church still trying to keep things going. And if you read any of Brian Hales or the other fair apologists work on this, a lot of their apologetic arguments are, are trying to push everything back to Evans and Crawley as though they were rogue apostles acting on their own. And, and again, the Evans family piled all of this to illustrate that no, he was no rogue agent. He was clearly in contact with the first presidency. And, uh, and asking back and forth, how do I do this? What What is the right way to live this sort of secretive secondary church? And again, that's my family line, so I have a, a bit of an interest there. Yeah, that's uh, There you go. There's my there's my timeline and all of its glory. That's that's great and so, so helpful. Yeah, I, I do want to bounce off some conspiracy theories with you, if, if you're okay with that. Sure. So when I first, you know, before I even heard the fundamentalist argument and knew about the 1886 revelation, and I was just, you know, sort of in this study of Mormon polygamy, I already started to come up with some of these similar conclusions that fundamentalists have, which is interesting. I think that there's a good case to be made, which is that the LDS church, you know, gives people busy work and the real principle or line of authority was supposed to be on earth. Cause we know that John Taylor said it would never leave the earth, you know? Yes. So, there are some compelling arguments for that. And again, these are conspiracy theories, but I want to rattle them off. And uh, I think it's kind of a fun thing to talk about. So, for example, if you go with that premise that this line of authority was passed to these guys, and then, of course, it gets really messy, you know, into different break-off sects that we're going to talk about later yes. on. If you go with that, let's let's just think of some evidence to back that up. So the idea of revelation, these ideas of prophets meeting with God and Jesus, we know stops with John Taylor. Wilford Woodruff does have some of these go-into-the-wilderness experiences where he has revelations and brings them back. But Wilford Woodruff wasn't really respected by a lot of his apostles, right? It's true. Some would say he wasn't even taken seriously as a prophet, and they didn't want to sustain him as such. So, and there's some argument with, with John Taylor with that as well, that, again, that George Buchanan was really running the church, and if you wanted something done, you found him. But John W. Taylor, I mean, yeah, he was the prophet, but you find George Buchanan. So, yeah, that's, again, a very foreign concept for this day and age, but I think that's true for Wilford Woodruff as well, yes. Yeah, so so if you go with that, I mean, I, I hear modern criticisms of the church that say, you know, where are revelations? Why don't we hear anything new? Well, to fundamentalists, that makes total sense, right? Yes. The LDS Church fact, doesn't have new revelations because they don't have the authority to do so. If you want the the true conspiracy theory, and this we are deep in conspiracy theory land here, That's so okay. everyone knows. I am. Not I asked you. 
yeah, this is this is not good history. This is just fun to, to read about. But uh, you've pro- you may have heard of the famous um, instance where uh, Lorenzo Snow talks about meeting Christ in the Salt Lake Temple. And uh, how I was introduced to this is that someone in seminary asked, well, where did he meet Christ in the Salt Lake Temple? And the, uh, the se- my seminary teacher said, well, you know, there was, w- when I saw someone ask that question to the temple president when we were on a tour, he said Christ has stood in many places in the Salt Lake Temple. I was like, oh, that's, that's a cool story. No, that's cool. <laughs> and uh, and then when I was doing my research, I was like, wait, that kid knew something that he was asking a specific question. So I started to do research on when did Christ appear to Lorenzo Snow, and he ends up appearing to him in the hallway uh, of the Salt Lake Temple. And I thought that that was interesting. This kid was definitely asking something there. Well, there's this set of uh, stories. When, when Lorenzo Snow is there, his granddaughter is waiting for him in the temple, and she did this frequently. We know that that part at least is true. And uh, he comes down to her and says, I've just met with Christ in the hallway of the Salt Lake Temple. And he says, there is no longer a presiding high priest on this earth. That's why I cannot meet you in the Holy of Holies. From now on, it is the president of the church, not the presiding high priest. Again, there's no way to verify. There's no right. like detail we can work from. But from the fundamentalist perspective, it's a clear stopping point for the LDS church and that this revelation and this, this authority for sealing had moved over to them. It's a clear point. Okay. So I'm going to throw some more at you. So the recent okay. women's ordination one, uh, women, of course, women cannot receive the priesthood from Thomas S. Monson because Thomas S. Monson does not have the authority to give women the priesthood. Oof. Um, I, I would say that that's more likely under the category of he doesn't feel that he can get an answer. Exactly. But then yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm very skewed on, on my perspective there. Uh, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask, but... Uh, no, no, okay. these are just theories. So let, let me think of the other right. ones. I should have written these down uh, because I've been I've been reading about about a bunch of them and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is interesting. Uh, oh, the reason why the church is a corporation corporation based is because they are there to keep sort of the finances alive and sort of turn a blind eye. And that's why Utah doesn't prosecute polygamists as much as it should, because it needs money to uh, fund these guys. And that's why the church isn't transparent. Have you heard anything like that? I, I haven't. I, I can't say that that, uh, that jives up. We To understand, and you may I'm going to go down this road. You can cut it out if you want later. Okay. <laughs> uh, so to, another thing, I mean, we, normally we talk about church history without any sort of context around it. 1860s and 70s, just to put some sort of context when this revelation's coming out and, and these things, that's when Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett and the Jane Austen books, Pride and Prejudice, are, are going on over in England. Uh-huh. Um, we're talking that time period to World War One was... Uh, 1918. So that's the sort of time period we're talking, you know, gas lights are being changed out for electric light bulbs. The automobile is a new concept. That's all going on while this is flowing. Uh, in 1890, we have a financial crash that is very similar to the one that we faced back in 2008. Same sort of the bankers are going wild with, with speculation on land and it all comes crashing down. And again, to understand that, 
You remember that the, the uh, there's a, a verse in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about that Joseph, if he is 80 years old, will see the second coming. And nowadays, we kind of just put that off as like, well, he didn't live to be 80 years old, so we just it didn't didn't happen, and we don't really know what that means. These guys, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, they believed it. They believed the world was going to end. And in the finances, you see them trying to borrow money like crazy all the way up to 1890 because they believe the world is going to end. And so this, this financial crash happens at the same time as all of their loans are coming due. And there's no financial escape for the church. And then Wilford Woodruff dies uh, really suddenly. He goes out to, to meet with the guy who helped him get statehood. And he, he dies on Thursday. He gets a, speaks on Monday, dies on Thursday. And Lorenzo Snow is left with no idea how he's going to fund the church or be able to do anything. Um, with all these banknotes coming due and he does his little round of tithing and they are um, financially secure by April at the end of that year. So I think the financial side comes, it, it's connected with all these stories, this idea that the power had moved away from the church, there was no longer a presiding high priest, the, the secret ones were going to be out in the wilderness, and they just had to survive until the polygamy thing was legal again. I think that was very much the idea that Lorenzo Snow was working with when he instituted the 10% tithing uh, mandatory rule. And there is historical precedent for that, right? And in, in fact, I was taught in LDS Church that polygamy would be brought back someday. Yeah, I was absolutely taught that by my mother, who absolutely hated the principle and had turned this guy down. But it wasn't today. She knew that. It wasn't today. And But one day it would be brought back, and we'd all understand it when it came. Yeah. Okay, so there there are a bunch more, and I can't think of them, but I, here's the biggest one, I think. The biggest, probably the most um, clandestine conspiracy theory. That the brethren of the LDS Church actually believe in the principle and might be practicing it, and that is the reason why they will not uh, outright repudiate the doctrine that they leave 132 in, and that they will not change the sealing practices to be more equitable, because... They are actually doing it secretly like they have all along throughout church history. Yeah, um, I, they certainly believe it for uh, not in this life. And they, they keep that practice going. Howard W. Hunter sealed to a second wife um, after his first one died. And, and both gravestones are put right with him with the belief that they are all going to be one happy family in the next life. I believe that the... I've met a few of the general authorities. I've sat and talked in some living rooms, um, and they certainly had that idea that that it was a, a principle that still was very much in effect. Whether it was going to come back, the implication I was given, and this is by a son of a general authority, so take that for what it's worth. We all know that that does not necessarily equate to anything. But uh, was that when we got back to Adam on Diamond, that's when polygamy would be reinstated again, and it would go forward from that point forward. Um, yeah, I've heard similar things. Yeah, lived with that expectation. So, is there any actual evidence that you're aware of to suggest that the church might, the LDS church might be sort of harboring these guys or have good relationships? Because from what I'm aware, there's a real hostility between between yeah, the no, LDS church and these. I would say that all ended with that Joseph Fielding Smith 
time period and uh, and looser. The, by the end of that, there is no cordial relationship. No one's going to be speaking at anyone else's funeral. And again... So is it safe so to say that our brethren believe that they actually have the prophetic keys? Oof. I don't know that that equates. I believe that they don't believe that the FLDS have the right authority. Okay, that's fair. Of that. That's I fair, yeah. I mean, I don't know that we would, any any of us would know that. I was just wondering if there's some little yeah. side thing that you've stumbled upon. No, I got nothing for you on that one. And there's a couple of prophets just before Warren Jeffs. Um, about two prophets before that, they start really prophesying a lot and going further off the deep end. And that's, I think that hits in the Spencer W. Kimball time frame. So even though they were related there was a, a huge distance by that point, and I don't think there's. I mean, that's when the Johnson. But I mean, you're just talking off. about the FLDS, of course. But there, there are all these other sects like the Centennial Park and the AUB and TLC. Well, TLC, I don't think would claim the same lines. No, I don't think so. Uh, but the All Red Group, I think there's a good case to be made there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Getting, because they still build chapels for the LDS Church all over here, and they have. A, there's a couple of chapels that are in the area that have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on them, but if you walk in, it is a completely uh, polygamous ward of this all-red group. And supposedly they built it without any sort of authority or, or you know, the, the LDS Church didn't know about it. They're just trying to blend in like chameleons. But, uh, well, and a lot, lot of these of fundamentalists uh, attend LDS Church, and we're going to talk about this with Sanjeev a little yeah. bit, but they attend, you might, it's likely that if you're in a Utah ward that you have been in a ward with a fundamentalist, they go on missions, they get married in the temple. It's not, yeah. it's not all that unlikely to go to church with fundament- practicing fundamentalists and not know it. I have two very good stories. Uh, one, I was in a, a, an exercise group where it turned out three of them had uh, come from polygamous homes. And uh, I don't know whether they were they were scoping the exercise group for additional wives or not. There was no discussion on that that point. But uh, but we've had some very good conversations since then. Uh, but you never would have been able to tell because they've learned to blend, like this chameleon concept. They talk like the others and so forth. My, my father served, or my father-in-law served a mission where one of the APs, uh, long before he got there, was polygamous. And when the mission president was sick, he started to reenact or reinstate some of the polygamous doctrines with the sister missionaries uh, in the mission, and it had to be all cleaned up, and people were sent home and so forth. Oh, yeah, this happened in France, famously. We're going to be talking about the Tuckers and the Barons. Exactly, it was in France. It's it's like this is this is common. This is what this is what kind of blew my mind again in studying this. And I found myself sort of angry again because I grew up with this lie or this perception that they are the weird ones and we're the ones that have got it straight. And it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. In fact, just for the mind blowing moment. uh, So this Matthias Crawley that I talked about, F. Crawley. Uh, not to be confused with his son. Um, he got married to this 19 year old in 1905. She lived until 1964. Now, they didn't remove the marriage when they disfellowshipped him and they didn't excommunicate him. So he still had all of his priesthood authority and so forth. And he was more or less reinstated after but he wasn't one of the 12. But you could go to an LDS warehouse with a man and two women on the same pew that one was an apostle until 1964-ish, 
and it was legitimate. Mm-hmm. And that's not at all the picture that they paint when they say, oh, that, that all ended a hundred years ago. That's by no means, I mean, we're not even talking the, the marriages that were sealed by patriarchs in the 1930s where they thought they had authority uh, and had no evidence against it. We're talking about just apostolic level until 1964. That's not so many years before I was born. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, and Mike Quinn talks about this in his research. I think Heber J. Grant, the last practicing prophet of polygamy. I look yes, that up. David O. McKay is where you start that new that new leap. And uh, and Harold B. Lee, seeing Crawley and Evans go on trial and some of these polygamists decides on a new world order, if you will, uh, that, that we're going to rewrite what it means to be Mormon. And that's where correlation springs up. He comes up with that idea specifically to split us away from the false Mormons, from those polygamous Mormons, and to get away from that. So yeah, very much defined today by by this whole set of revelations. Well, Mithrin, this has been so fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. And people can find you online, right? Yeah, uh, on Reddit. I've got a, a Facebook page as well. And then I also have a blog called Exploring Mormonism, where this timeline will go up with links to everything I talked about. And people can do what I love to do and look at my sources of sources and tell me where I'm wrong. I'm always happy to hear. Great. And I will link to the timeline so people can see that. And I think that's a great resource in helping understand this. Because listeners, like I said in the last episode, buckle up. This is going to be a really bumpy ride from here on out to try to understand this practice. So I really appreciate you helping us with this today. Thank you for having me. Okay. And everyone, thanks for listening to the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.